Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Archetypal wild man Edward Abbey and proper dedicated Wallace Stegner left their footprints all over the western landscape. Now in his book, All the Wild That Remains, nature writer David Gessner follows the ghosts of these remarkable men, from Stegner's birthplace in Saskatchewan to the site of Abbey's pilgrimages to Arches National Park in Utah, interweaving their stories and asking how they speak to the issues that confront the West today. In a region affected by droughts and fires, by fracking and drilling, by ever-growing population that may be loving the West to death, Gessner asked how might these two far-seeing environmental thinkers have responded. David Gessner is author of Return of the Osprey, My Green Manifesto, The Tarball Chronicles, and other books. He teaches at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where he founded the literary journal Ecotone. And he'll be in Utah for three events coming up uh, this summer at Ken Sanders Rare Books. That's the first event in Salt Lake City, Friday, May 1st. Then back of Beyond Books on June 12th at King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on July 18th. And he joins us for the hour today on the program. David Gessner, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you uh, taking time to uh, be with us. Uh, oh, it seems the, it's actually pub day, and it seems the perfect uh, place to launch things. Uh, it, 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 Utah uh, being the state that mattered so much to both of those, those yeah, men. Yes, indeed. And, and, and of course, much of, much of your book is set in, in Utah, indeed, because they spent so much time in, in Utah. Yeah, yeah. So you, I think one of the funniest parts of my book is that it said, says at the end uh, in the bio, David Gessner lives and works in Wilmington, North Carolina, <laughs> officially uh, undermining my position as expert Westerner. <laughs> now, you, you lived in the West for a while. I did. I did. I lived for seven years in Colorado. And you say that, uh, I guess, events, circumstances, job took you to North Carolina, but you, you followed the West like a person would follow a favorite football team. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really was. Um, I mean, the... The generation that preceded me in terms of nature writers, the Wendell Berries of the world and Gary Snyders, always found one place, planted their flag, and called it home. And that goes back even to Thoreau. And certainly Abby and Stegner, though Abby moved within the West so much, you know, found their region and, and claimed it. I'm of a slightly more uh, restless um, generation, and you know, I, I thought I was going to stay in the West forever. But forever turned out to be seven years because uh, I got a job offer and I had a new child on the way and uh, and off I went, always thinking I'd come back. And in fact, during the trip, which was in the summer of 2012, at the end of the trip, I brought my daughter along and she'd never been west of the Mississippi before. And she was eight at the time. So it was a it was a big moment for me. You it's funny scene early in the book. You tell, I guess, Easterners you're going to go back west and, and you're studying up on Wallace Stegner and and uh, uh, Edward uh, Abbey. Yeah. And what was their response? Uh, Wallace Stevens, Edward Abbey. <laughs> you know, a- a- Abbey himself makes that joke in one of his introductions that people always confused him with Edward Abbey, and it's it's really true still, and still it's it's funny to to a Western reader. A Westerner that that it would they'd be so confused, and of course Abby and Stegner themselves were were very aware of this, and in their different styles, kind of uh, uh, confronted it. Um, Stegner famously said, "Never make the New Yorker's mistake of taking New York for America," and Abby, as usual, was more con- confrontational. He had a friend in New York City who said to him, "The difference between us, Ed." is that you're a big fish in a small pond, and I'm a small fish in a big pond. And Abby said, perfect. This guy thinks the American West is a small pond. Mm, yeah. And, you know, it culminated in a piece in the New York Times Magazine called Writers of the Purple Sage, in which they uh, identified Stegner as William Stegner. So, you know, they were always... There was an element of them feeling slighted having done such great work, which they did, and not being recognized by New York, which, as Stegner always pointed out, is, is very regional. It's just that the region that is favored is this small little island off, you know, in, in the Northeast. And it's really, as somebody who's lived in the South also, it's really not just a Westerner's lament. It's a, it's a regional American's lament that uh, sometimes not enough credit is given to writers beyond, you know, the walls of Manhattan. Hmm. So you uh, you point out that uh, Stegner and Abbey uh, spent a lot of times a lot of time contemplating 
arguing over what exactly a Westerner was and, and was not. I wonder if we get into that uh, topic. You you uh, pinpoint a moment in Stegner's first novel, Big Rock Candy Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Where the, the, well, he, you know, the hero they, is, they, is driving. Go ahead. Yeah. No, they're coming, you know, it's interesting, because in the one case you have kind of the archetypal Easterner comes west and sees the mountains for the first time, and this is Abby I'm talking about, and says, you know, it was like seeing a naked girl for the first time, you know, typical Abby, and he's just, he just falls in love, and he knows he has to move there. For Stegner, the, the moment you're describing, he spent his whole childhood, you know, he's born in 1909, and he spent his childhood at the tail end of the frontier, kind of roaming the West with his ne'er-do-well uh, father, who's always looking to strike it rich. And so he knows the West in his, in his blood, basically, but he doesn't know that he knows it until he goes back east to Iowa and then drives home. And suddenly things are, um, the colors are changing. They're not as green. They're sere and brown. Uh, fewer towns in between. There's spaces. Um, the dryness, he really notices it for the first time since he's left it. Um, I remember when I moved to El Dorado Springs from Massachusetts in 1990 and felt the West first in my nose, the way it was drying out. You know, he starts to notice all these things, and out of that, out of those things that he's noticing, and out of his childhood, which was a classic boomer childhood, you know, racing around the West, he starts to put together this bigger theory. Because his mind always, I mean, they're really different in a lot of ways, and one, way, one thing Stegner had was this ability to always take the particulars and make them into something larger. And, and he started to have a big picture view of the West. Well, I think uh, you made reference to this a little bit earlier. That we're used to uh, people who write about the West, nature writers, uh, write about nature, I should say, not about the West. Right. As you say, you know, plant their flag in a very particular place. Right. Because the archetype of that is Thoreau. He's Walden Pond. He's Exactly. But uh, but Stegner is saying he his hero in the novel says he's a Westerner, whatever that means. But he's it's a whole region. Right. And, and for him, you know, one thing it meant, I mean, a lot of, as I mentioned, his, his dad was what he called a boomer versus a nester. You know, his mother was a nester who wanted to stay in one place. And Stegner's moving from Saskatchewan to Salt. He ends up finding the closest thing he has to home in Salt Lake City, but first he moves all over the West. And while he's doing that, he begins to see that the Western myths, you know, the romance of the West, are in his mind's uh, in his mind kind of bull, and that the reality is, when he when he when he lands in Salt Lake City, um, he hears lots of bad mouthing of Mormons, and he and he's very critical of Mormon society too, but he sees famously that their agriculture benefits from a simple concept that of sharing. <laughs> you know, it, he, everything in his life teaches him to debunk the rugged individualist myth. And it's really interesting to see how that comes about. It comes out of the opposite, out of a childhood of rootlessness. He starts to want to root. He compares and contrasts his parents. His, the, the father, George, is a, what he calls a boomer. Yeah, yeah. Which his is... mother, um, I, one of my first stops as I drove out west was at Wendell Berry's house, the Kentucky nature writer who was a student of Stegner's. And Wendell pointed out that every year the mother would plant perennial flowers, and that was kind of a hopeful gesture that this is the place we're going to stay. Hmm. The closest they came was East End, uh, Saskatchewan, where I, where I went on the end of my trip, and they really thought, um, this is the place, you know. Stegner loved it. He, he wrote about feeling as free as a hawk and roaming the fields, and took a real kind of boy's physical pleasure in the place, but um, ultimately it was drought that did his father in, and that that also struck with him. You know, when he defines what it is to be a Westerner, he says, the unity of drought above all else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why his famous book about Powell is called Beyond the Hundredth Meridian, as I'm sure most of your listeners know. You know, it's like, that was, to him, the central illusion, the central myth, was importing wetland habits from the East and thinking they would work in the dry West. So, as I'm re- being reminded of the, you know, the, this 
dichotomy between the parents and these are two archetypes that he sets up. The, the boomer, get rich quick, whether it be oil or gold or land or tourism, versus the sticker, as he called it, who, who settles, learns a place and commits to it. That seems very contemporary. That's, that's yeah, a, yeah. I think it's, you know, I, I, I've actually found myself humming in the, the beginning of um, the Archie Bunker song, uh, Mr. We Could Use a Man Like Herbert Hoover Today, but I put Wallace Stegner in, and as I see this news coming in about the droughts and the water rationing, I just think, oh my God, you know, this is right out of his writings in the 1950s, really, when he started to turn more environmental and political. You mentioned you uh, you stopped in and uh, and visited with w- Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an interesting, uh, if I can find it here uh, quickly, uh, he talks about, and of course he's got his, his, his farm, and he's got some wild on the edge of his, his farm there, but he, he, yeah. he stresses land use. And so I, I wonder, what, what's the place for wilderness then? Yeah, well, he was, he made it, this was, this was him kind of cautioning me against romanticizing wilderness alone and saying, yeah, wilderness is important. And he made it very clear that he believes in wilderness preservation. But he said the reality with population moving the way it's moving, particularly in the West, is considering, you know, putting things aside for wilderness, but thinking about land use in places that are not wilderness. And to me, it was a prod and a push to not think just lyrically and romantically about nature, but to think in, in more hard terms, more stagnarian terms, I guess. Um, for me as a writer, the evolution, you know, a lot of my early books are romanticizing places. I, I, I had an essay early on called The Polygamous of Place that was actually published in High Country News, where I say, my, Cape, my uh, Walden originally was Cape Cod. Then I moved to Colorado, and my Walden was Colorado. And then I moved back east, you know. And so I define myself as opposed to Stegner and Barry as people, they, they define themselves as people who married a place. And I said I was a polygamous place, <laughs> you know, somebody who loved many places. But I would write kind of lyric um, evocations of those places. And really the turn for me came when I was at a, a barbecue at a friend's house uh, five years ago, almost to the day five years ago. And uh, a friend who was a writer I respect a lot, John Jeremiah Sullivan, said, you should be down in the Gulf during the spill, during the oil spill. Um, you write about nature, you should be there. And I said, oh, no, that's not the kind of nature I write about, thinking of, you know, light shafting in and little uh, transcendental moments. And I went home and I thought about it, and I said, he's ac- absolutely right. Uh, and two days later, to my wife's chagrin, I was heading down to the Gulf, and I was down there during the whole mess five years ago, and it got me to start thinking more and more about resources, about consumption, about hard stuff that a lot of times gets left out of, of nature books. And certainly Stegner is an example of somebody who included it. You know, he, he appreciated the, the, the phony contrast between Abby and Stegner is that Stegner didn't get out in it. He hiked and, and ran rivers and did everything. You know, he was always outside, but he thought hard about what Barry called land use. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, more with David Gessner, who's a nature writer, author of Return of the Osprey, My Green Manifesto, The Tarball Chronicles, other books. He teaches at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He founded the literary journal Ecotone there. Uh, he uh, writes frequently in uh, national magazines, and uh, his uh, book is All the Wild That Remains, the latest book, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. He's uh, coming to Utah for several of events on, on his tour. The first of those will be at Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City, and that's on Friday, May 1st. Then he's at Back of Beyond Books in, on June 12th and King's English Bookshop. Uh, that's in Moab, by the way. And King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City on uh, July 18th. He's our guest for the hour here. If you have a question or comment, I'd love to get your Wallace Stegner story or Edward Ab- Abbey story, your uh, your views on contemporary issues today and what these two men would have said about it, 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com are the places to respond. And we do have a comment. We'll come back uh, from uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona, when we return.
Until the 1950s, psychologists focused on what was wrong with people. And then came Abraham Maslow. I don't think there's anything Pollyanna about saying, yes, persons can be improved. Maslow was really one of the first to think about what's right with the person. Scaling Maslow's Hierarchy of Human Needs. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Congratulations to Utah State undergraduates Katie Sweet and David Griffin for their achievements of 2015 Goldwater Honorees. The prestigious national competition recognizes outstanding achievements in science and mathematics. This will be the second consecutive year Griffin has received honorable mention. UPR congratulates Katie Sweet and David Griffin for their gold standard achievements. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with David Gessner, nature writer and author most recently of All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. David Gessner decided to uh, make a pilgrimage of sorts uh, to uh, the places uh, lived in and written about by uh, these two great environmental writers, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. He took that journey, and uh, the result is uh, the book, All the Wild That Remains. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And uh, we've got a, a brief email from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Uh, we're talking about what what the West is and what a Westerner is. And he says, are San Francisco and Los Angeles, especially Los Angeles, part of the West? What What do you say, David well, Kistner? I would say that Stegner would certainly say they are, um, and they are in, let's just take one small way, um, a way um, that is um, very pertinent right now, uh, their dependency on snowpack in a way that no Easterner is, uh, is really aware of or has been until the last few weeks. Maybe they're a little more aware right now. I have a friend who was, uh, a new friend who was a rock climber and writer in the Sierras, and he went out with a snow surveyor not long ago, and uh, they were astounded by what they saw or what they didn't see, which was the surveyor said that the lowest he'd seen the particular place they were hiking was uh, 1977. That was the the smallest amount of snow, and that it was at 60% of that right now. So I think, you know, a a lot of things that Abby and Stegner said things that Mark Reisner said in his great book, Cadillac Desert, um, are going to be things that people are going to be much more aware of in the years that come. So I would say in that regard, they are. Um, I think Stegner specified that the Pacific Northwest, at least the wetter parts of the Pacific Northwest, were he specified that there are certain anomalies within the greater whole where... And really water was the lack of water was the unifying principle for him. Yeah, that, I feel I feel bad. Yeah. Where you know this is for me. This is really interesting because people usually want to talk about Abby more than <laughs> Stegner, <laughs> but uh, but Stegner, you know, it's so relevant. I was thinking on the car ride in this morning. He's so relevant in terms of this big picture. You know, he was a master of the children's game of connecting the dots, of connecting geography to culture, to you know, to work, to land use. Um, Abby offered something different, and I was I was thinking, what could Abby really offer right now. And one of the things he did, and it's a little bit the opposite of Stegner, is he made environmentalism fun. He made it sexy. He made getting in a fight seem like this romantic thing. And uh, that's this is the least of what he did. He also wrote great books and, you know, but, but this is something where I think, um, uh, well, I'll tell, I'll answer my own or I'll end my own by, by telling a story. Uh, about four years ago, I was walking with my daughter um, and my wife. My daughter was actually up on my shoulders at Walden Pond. And we got around to the corner of the pond, and my wife pointed at where the foundation uh, to Thoreau's house was. And she said, that's where the man lived who ruined Daddy's life. 
Um, and, <laughs> you know, and that's what Abby's done to so many people with Desert Solitaire. Mm-hmm. You read it and you don't really recover. Mm-hmm. And that's true of Westerners and Easterners who are often turned into converts by reading Desert Solitaire and going, oh my God, there's this other way of being. You know, there's this other place. And to me, that's the real thrill and excitement of, of Abby. It's an interesting extension of our discussion earlier about what what the role of a writer should be, right? You you said you were you were moved to, to activism by a, by a friend. Mm-hmm. These two writers could definitely move people to to action. What how did they see themselves? Were they see themselves as political? Well, that's a great question because one of the things you know I, I, in in interviews, and this is my first of hopefully many, but in interviews it's going to be a natural thing to treat them almost like politicians because of their environmental records and because of what they did. And we can go into that. But they saw themselves first and foremost as writers, as artists. You know, if you would ask them, what's more important, my nonfiction, which in Abby's case would be Desert Solitaire or Stegner, The Wilderness Letter, or my novels, they were of the time and of the mind where the novels were paramount. That's what they were really, they were trying to make their literary mark. And they didn't want them to be environmental texts. Obviously, Monkey Ranch Gang is a different story. That's more of a political uh, novel. But they were really concerned with with getting all the complexity in there. And so it's interesting the way their reputations evolved, where the nonfiction um, became just as important, or probably in Abby's case, more important than the fiction. You uh, you talk about and Thoreau seems to be a a, a theme. I guess if you're going to yeah. write, write about nature, you're going to talk about Thoreau. But yeah. you you compared and contrasted Thoreau with with Abby. You said uh, Thoreau said he spoke loudly because those he addressed were hard of hearing, and you, and you you want to apply that to Abby. Yeah, I mean I think that uh, Abby is Abby. There was just a piece uh, on Annie Dillard writing Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I think it was in Harper's, and it said that when Dillard was looking to write kind of a modern Walden, she looked for a modern example, and she settled on Desert Solitaire, which I'm sure most um, listeners know is Abby's story of a year, though it was you know, more than that, but it, it's a story of a year at our season at Arches uh, Park in, in National Park in Utah. Um, and the, the comparison of that to Walden was really fascinating to me, uh, not so much because of the story, which is the classic, you know, Year in the Woods, but the voice. Uh, I loved I loved Abby's ability on the page to be in so many different moods, to shift from, you know, uh, exalted nature descriptions to fart jokes to, to the, you know, this contemplation of, of big picture uh, eco-concerns. I mean, it's always shifting, and it's like I, I've always loved kind of the... the um, Monty Python comic trope of the philosopher looking up at the sky and then he steps in dog crap. And I think there was a lot of that going on with Abby so that when you read him, you really feel the person on the page. And the quote you referred to about Thoreau, you know, sometimes Abby, you know, we, we're all, I mean, he would have, we think he would be torn apart these days because he, you know, he said such controversial things. But sometimes that's what he's doing. He's speaking loudly to kind of get our attention and startle us. And a lot of times there's a subtle truth, but, you know, within the loud statement. I think you're quoting Wendell Berry here. You said Abby's finest invented character was his nonfiction self. Exactly. So is, is, he, he's, is he presenting himself as bigger than life, or would, was he really that way? Is he, is he exaggerating a bit to, to get well, some attention? Well, you know, one of the tropes about him is that, and everybody who knows him says he was much shyer in person um, than he was on the page. But... I think he's doing something that Montaigne, the first essayist in you know the 1500s, did, which is recreating the self on the page. Uh, and in that way, you know, in, for my money, Montaigne, who few fewer people know, is more immortal than Shakespeare. Though we all go to Shakespeare's plays because we still can feel his personality on the page. You know, the Emerson said of Montaigne, you know, cut his sentences and they bleed. Well, cut Abby's sentences and they bleed. So his artistic creation was to get that get that self across on the page. So it's not just him ranting against, say, the Glen Canyon Dam. It's him um, 
as a character doing that and then also noticing a beautiful juniper tree off to the side and and so we we're we're taken through it in a way that's a little different than we're taking through say an editorial or a screed though he certainly does his share of editorializing mm-hmm. but so it's the whole experience of reading it that's exciting to me there, there <laughs> with abby especially there's some funny moments uh you you were kind of, i think he was editing a magazine in new mexico he, yeah. he he attributes a, a famous quote of Diderot to Louisa May Alcott. Tell us what that yeah. what that is. It's a great it's a great moment, and he does it, and he gets kicked off as the editor. The quote is, um, uh, "Man will not be free until the last entrail until the last priest is strangled with the last entrails with the entrails of the last king," and then he puts Louisa May Alcott below it. So, you know, he's always ready. You know, he said of Gary Snyder. Um, the the kind of Zen beat poet. I love his work except for all the Zen bullshit. I mean, he was always you know had the punchline ready and and uh, and usually it was pretty blunt and and that's another reason to kind of delight in him. I was interested. You uh, you've you've looked at his FBI file. And... Yeah, yeah. I, well, you know, it was kind of um, they really started following him early. You know, when he he organized back in Pennsylvania against the draft, he put up a little sign, really, and then they started following him around, and they had plenty to follow as it went along, because, of course, as I wrote in the book, monkey wrenching, uh, environmental or ecological sabotage, right, is was so romantic then, and he portrays it so brilliantly in Monkey Wrench Gang, but imagine what would happen now, or post-9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting to think of Abby as a creature of his time, as great as he was, he he fit right in with you know late sixties, seventies, kind of uh, throwing off the shackles and celebrating freedom. And so, to the extent that we have in our minds associated with Abby monkey wrenching, uh, what 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 is the legacy? Well, that's a you know I talk with a FBI agent, ex FBI agent. And thought about that a lot, and talked to Tim DeChristopher, um, who um, bid on the on the gas lands in Utah and went to jail for two years in Denver. And one of the things we talked about is that Abby still offers something, even when we maybe don't want to break the law quite as much. Uh, and it's the power of symbol and the power of of uh, kind of making a bold gesture. Whereas Stegner kind of offers uh, a larger way of thinking about the land, Abby presents a way of kind of acting that still excites the imagination. And, and I get to talking to this F- FBI agent, and one of the things I said was, uh, you know, maybe maybe this, today it means a reality show about um, environmental activism. Maybe, you know, as Tim DeChristopher suggested to me, maybe now, whereas the old days it was secrecy, that define monkey wrenching. You'd only do it with one other person or two at the most and don't tell anybody. Maybe now you film uh, degradation by the, you know, the baddies. And maybe maybe there's a new way of taking that old spirit and, and making it work. And I, and I know, of course, that is being done all over the West. I just, um, you know, I was just trying to think of how Abby could kind of come into the present. If you just joined us, we're talking with David Gessner. His previous books include The Return of the Osprey, My Green Manifesto, The Tarball Chronicles, and many other books. He teaches at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. He founded the literary journal Ecotone. You can find his writings in many magazines. And uh, he'll be at uh, Ken Sanders Rare Books in Salt Lake City on Friday, May 1st. Then in June, Back of Beyond Books in Moab. That's on Friday, June 12th. And then in July, the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, Saturday, July 18th. He's with us for the hour. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us uh, on Twitter, where we're at Utah Public Radio. I wonder if you could tell me about that. This jumped out at me. Um, I'm a native of Vernal and uh, have been to Harper's Corners. So th- that passage in the book really, really jumped uh, out at me. And, and this brings together several themes, past, present, and future. You, you apparently went out to Vernal. You went out on an excursion, came back, couldn't get a hotel room because of all the I think, oil developers who you know soaked up all the hotel rooms. I suspect I'd be rooms. able to get one now. Yeah. I could be wrong, but 
probably a little probably better now. Yeah, quite as hopping as they were when I was there. I, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, so, so tell me about about that. And you're, and you're musing as you go along about um, Wallace Stegner's being urged by his friend Bernard Devoto to uh, to get into uh, get into the environmental fight, and then Stegner was quite instrumental in the in the fight against Echo Park Dam. Yeah, in fact, he um, he did something, and this is this was like you know late fifties. He did something in that fight, um, which was uh, create a book called "This Is Dinosaur" uh, with Knopf, that was distributed to all members of Congress, and that raised awareness. He did things, and that was one of the earliest anti-dam fights that would become kind of templates for later fights in the Grand Canyon. And it's interesting that um, he was somewhat reluctant to get involved first. Devoto, um, another uh, person from Utah, uh, was never shy about getting in a fight. Uh, Stegner said of him, he had the instincts of a middle linebacker. He was already (laughs) ready to battle. And he kind of became a model for Stegner. And Stegner then has a few years where very early on in the Kennedy administration, he works with Stuart Udall, and together they map out land to be saved that would include canyon lands. Um, and he becomes that rare thing, a writer who's not just sitting in his study, but is in the halls, hallways of Washington and, and actually getting in, in battles. And he writes The Wilderness Letter, which really is the kind of literary uh, uh, kind of declaration of what would become the Wilderness Act uh, early in the 60s. So it's really an exciting time for him. And of course, Dinosaur is what he saves first. Um, I'd be happy to read that Yes, the end of that passage. De- def- like. Definitely, yeah. We could set, set this up. You're, you're uh, I think, at Harper's Corner. You're looking down. This is up, I don't know how many thousand feet, looking down the confluence of the, uh, what is the Yampa and the... Yeah. I'm looking Kevin down at the where other. the dam would have been. Would, would have been, yes, yes. This beautiful site. And I've already been to Vernal earlier in the day, and I know that um, there are some Vernal residents who are probably not thrilled with my portrayal of their town. I don't know if you're one, but I did find, you know, I called it the land of the white trucks, and I noticed that a lot of those trucks had license plates that were not from Utah. They were from Texas and Wyoming and even uh, surprisingly, Dakota, South Dakota, I would thought, thought they could have found plenty of work there at that time. Um, and so I was, I was musing about what, whose land is it? You know, uh, I understand that if somebody from North Carolina comes strolling into your town, you're going to be inclined to say, get the hell out of here, this is our land. But Stegner argued that our national lands, you know, belong to all of us and are our great pride. You know, he called it the was it the last best idea, or am I not remembering correctly? Yeah, I think, I anyway, think so, yeah. Anyway, at the end of this chapter, I finally um, get up to um, where I'm looking back down uh, in Dinosaur. Much of the land I stared down at from the plain that morning, and that I now stared down at from the overlook, was disputed land, land that had been involved in battles to save or exploit it. For, for those who could never see beyond the economic argument, It made no sense to just leave it alone. At a time when we are desperate for resources, why put resources out of reach? The same battle rages on. Why should anyone actually stop coring out the last of our lands, sucking up the last of the gas, damming the rivers? It's what we've always done. We came upon this country of plenty and took everything we could get our hands on. We didn't care what got in our way, native people, geography, climate, logic, whatever. We rationalize this as a kind of brave, bold, can-do way of being. And in some cases, it really was. But in many cases, it was and remains about greed. In many cases, we came as raiders, pure and simple, and raiders we remain. It is hard to argue against self-interest, against human nature. But human nature also involves training oneself to think beyond oneself. And places like this help make their, make their own case, their own counterargument. Abby said our high, highest need was for transcendence. Well, if it's transcendence you're after, this is where you'll find it, up in places like this. 
The overlook created something in me, some feeling or sensation that even the experience of seeing the ocean couldn't match. It was almost chemical. I saw the landscape and then something bubbled up, rising unbidden. I stood in a place that was almost desecrated and drowned, but was not. A place that was saved. The religious wording is intentional. Standing there, overwhelmed by sheer space, by the fact that I was within a landscape that at the moment was devoid of any other human being, the word awesome in its old usage came to mind. My hyperactive brain for once stopped its querulous wishing that it were somewhere else. The place both emptied and filled me. Sunlight hit the river, which became mirrored glass, blinding. That's a passage from All the Wild That Remains by David Gessner. Here at the author uh, reading that. That uh, is at uh, Harper's Corner in uh, Dinosaur National Monument uh, country in, uh, in Colorado, just uh, east of, uh, of Utah. Let's take another break when we come back more on Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West following the break. Did you know that you can reduce your risk for Alzheimer's disease? Proper nutrition, exercise, learning new things, getting enough rest, and maintaining good relationships are all strategies to keep your brain healthy. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. UPR listeners are company presidents, board members, partners, and other top executives. Your company can talk directly to these decision makers with program sponsorship. For more information, call Terry Guy at 435-797-3215. I'm Fred Child. On the way, pianist Stephen Hoff. I think of music as the thing you do when, when you run out of words that when you've said everything you can, then there's music. Stephen Huff brings his poetic spirit to music by Johannes Brahms in concert in Aspen, Colorado, on the next Performance Today from APM. Monday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with David Gessner whose latest book is All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com or on Twitter. We're at Utah Public Radio. David Gessner, I've been thinking about something you wrote in response to Desert Solitaire, Edward Abbey's great book, that out there in Arches... Uh, solitary figure. He he's trying to drill down through artifice of of modern life to the bedrock of of what's real. There's a picture, I think, probably associated with that sentiment, uh, where he's standing next to a television set that that he's shot. Right, right. Um, I think that really gets at kind of one of the core appeals of Abbey. I mean, there are two things going on. There's this one sense. You know, it's why when I mentioned Thoreau ruining my life or any young person kind of reading a book, there's a sense that they are offering kind of a counter life, a different way to live than the way most of us live. And I think that shines through in Desert Solitaire. We get the sense, oh, my God, you can live more simply, more boldly and more honestly, because that's the big draw of Abby, of course, um, for all the, the superficial stuff. He's, he's kind of honestly looking at life and saying, this is what it's like. So on the one hand, you have, uh, you know, you have this kind of uh, no-nonsense uh, trying to core down and get, get at the real thing. And on the other hand, you have the celebration of, of the beauty of the world that, uh, that is just, I think, thrilling for people. So, so to me, that's the, the moment. Now, of course, as I say, in real life, he was going through a divorce, and he was going back to New Jersey in the winter, and there was a lot of other stuff going on. But um, it's what you create on the page in a lot of ways. I mean, I read, I'm lucky to say I read Desert Solitaire rel- relatively late. Um, a lot of my early literary influences, for instance, I've been told that I can be funny on the page, and 
of course, that's something Abby was good at. But I really learned that from reading Philip Roth as a kid and Vonnegut more than I did Abby. I had already, you know, I was 29, uh, going on 30, right, right, right close to 30 when I when I moved west, and it was under really intense circumstances. I had had been diagnosed with testicular cancer um, in, in Worcester, Massachusetts, and during the radiation treatment. I felt like everything was going wrong in my life, and I got this acceptance to the University of Colorado Boulder. So I call it my deus ex machina of my uh, 20s. It was like I was at my low, low point. I'd been sick. Uh, I didn't have a job at that time, and suddenly I I got airlifted from Worcester, Mass., to to El Dorado Springs, Colorado. And it was out there um, that I kind of started to read Abbey, and as I say, I was luckily old enough where I didn't completely convert the way some people do and buy an old pickup and, and start monkey wrenching right away. Though I did start eating refried beans, which was an Abbey influence for sure. <laughs> um, but it was really the, the celebration. You know, I, I ended up getting a good prognosis, and it was that kind of celebration of coming back to life, you know, that sheer physical um, pleasure that, that in Abbey that, that got me. I wonder, uh, people, of course, still read Abby and, and Stegner. Obviously, you, you're still reading. In fact, I noticed that on Amazon, Abby's right up there at the top of the nature book still. Interesting, yeah. This week, so that's pretty amazing. So I was, I was wondering what what you think, what, what reaction do you get as you, you know, you're, I guess you're just starting your tour, but but as you do events, talk about these two two men. They, they still have inspired, you know, when you read Desert Solitaire or, or Angle of Repose, still still move people to... Uh, you know, changes to action? I think it does, and I think I think they're really relevant for right now for, for their different reasons. Um, and I, um, I don't think, I mean, the particulars have changed. For instance, you know, I mentioned that Stegner was kind of a genius at the great children's game of connecting the dots, and the dots he would connect would be climate and geography and um, jobs. But of course, the the game has changed with climate change, um, and a lot of people uh, just focus on climate change. And of course, we have to focus on it, particularly in the dry West. But um, Stegner Stegner was way ahead of the game, thinking about the things that we need to think about right now. So I think he's incredibly relevant. But also, as a you know, I'm I'm making him into too much of an environmental figure. Go read Crossing to Safety. Read these beautiful novels. Read Angle of Repose, and and they're completely they're they're still completely alive, which is exciting. Have have your I, per, no go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> uh, what, have your perceptions changed since you since you did took this pilgrimage? That yeah, yeah. I really feel here's here's a way that something that's really changed, and it's kind of a continuation of that go down to the Gulf story I told you early during the earlier during the BP spill. I feel that um, I've been kind of a slacker. Um, I've been involved in a few environmental fights, but part of my rational, I have two rationalizations for my relative lack of activism. One is that I've moved so much. You know, I don't have the connection to a region. Um, my first place was Cape Cod. If I lived on Cape Cod or when I lived on Cape Cod, I got involved in some local fights. Now I'm in North Carolina for, for a teaching job and I don't have a, much of a connection. Uh, so maybe I fight less. So that's one of my rationalizations. The other is that I'm primarily a writer, and therefore I'm not a politician. And, and well, these guys swipe wipe that right away because they're great writers who write book after book, and they're literary writers and they're uh, engaging writers, and also they find time to to fight for the land. So for me, I don't know how it's going to manifest itself. I'm actually heading. West in you know for the the reading you've been mentioning in Salt Lake City uh, in two weeks, and I'm going to be out there all summer, and I don't know how it's going to manifest itself, but it, it better manifest itself some way because uh, I'm starting to feel that something's lacking, and what's lacking is that is that fight. What if you could read the inscriptions at the beginning of the book? I think it, it sure sums up great. perfectly what each of these yeah. men felt about uh, the land and, and activism and what needs to be done. Yeah, we haven't really contrasted them too much, but I say in almost any area, including their hairstyles, you can just go and write a little essay about how 
the difference between Stegner and Abbey. You know, Stegner with that perfect white coiffed kind of mane, and Abbey with the shaggy, crazy hair. So, uh, and you can you could go through many things. Their river trips, uh, the way they worked, and just kind of have a fun little game of of contrasting them. But here are their epigraphs. Stegner first. We simply need that wild country available to us. Even if we never do more than drive to the edge and look in. For it can be a means of reassuring ourselves of our sanity as creatures, a part of the geography of hope. And that's from the wilderness letter. And this is Abby. Most of the formerly primitive road from Blanding West has been improved beyond recognition. All of this, the engineers and politicians and bankers will tell you, makes the region easily accessible to everybody, no matter how fat, feeble, or flaccid. That is a lie. It is a lie. For those who go there now, smooth, comfortable, quick and easy, sliding through slick as grease, will never be able to see what we saw. They will, will never feel what we felt. They will never know what we knew or understand what we cannot forget. Mm. And that's from How It Was by Ed Abbey. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good summation. We just have a couple minutes left, and, and you talked about comparing and contrasting. You do a lot of that in, in the book, of course, this interest, interesting contrast. Uh, I was struck by this passage. You said one appeal of tracking these two together is that they tug you in opposite directions. You say, right. I love the idea of Abbey as wildness, but in my own life I've been saved by way of Stegner. Yeah, you know, one, one way I've been saved, because I kind of romanticized, you know, I was growing up in the 70s, and I kind of romanticized myself as wild. You know, I read Hunter Thompson. Well, I figured out at some point that uh, that work was, was something that saved me from my own mental demons. And I think I say at one point I compare two river trips, that one that Abby took and one that Stegner took. And Abby is on the river, and he says, boy, I w- I'd like to just pull over and live here and roam naked and hunt deer and, and just, you know, live the noble savage life. And Stegner says in more subdued terms kind of the same thing. But then he says, and it would be a great place to write a novel. Because work is such a touchstone for Stegner. You know, he never, he, it's one of those foundations along with family and, you know, family loyalty that, that um, are things that he, he just always comes to rest on. And for me, heading north of 50 at this point, uh, it seems that sometimes, and this caught me by surprise, that Mr. Stegner had a little more to offer me than Mr. Abbey. Though I don't want to entirely lose the Abbey wildness. In fact, the book was originally called Properly Wild. uh, And the idea was how to be good and wild. You know, you don't want to be... And what does wild mean now? I mean, you don't want to be wild by, you know, being a a frat guy and and uh, being irresponsible, but there are ways to be wild that I believe can be combined with goodness, and it's it's somewhere in between those two men. <laughs> you can find it, you know. Like I say, the signposts point in different ways, but they're there, and they can kind of kind of lead you toward toward something, or you can try at least, because mm-hmm. you know T. S. Eliot said, "For us, there is only the trying." You know, it's this kind of groping effort to be more than what we are. The book is All the Wild That Remains, Edward Abbey, Wallace Stegner, and the American West. My guest has been David Gessner, and he's coming to Utah. Three events. First of those is Ken Sanders' Rare Books in Salt Lake City on Friday, May 1st. Then he's at Back of Beyond Books in Moab on Friday, June 12th, and at the King's English Bookshop back in Salt Lake City on Saturday, July 18th. David Gessner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Uh, say hi to Utah for me. I'll be seeing it myself in a couple weeks. Okay. <laughs> Have fun. Uh, and uh, tomorrow we'll talk about DNA, intersection of art and science with uh, an interesting artist. That's coming up tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Arizona is rich in history from the 1800s all the way back to the late Triassic period. You can stitch together a wonderful road trip that winds out of the Flagstaff on to Montezuma Castle National Monument to Petrified Forest National Park and ends at Hubble Trading Post National Historic Site. Along the way, you'll experience fascinating chapters of geologic and cultural history. At Montezuma Castle, 
45 minutes south of Flagstaff and just off Interstate 17, a short walk places you in front of a five-story tall cliff dwelling that offered safety from invaders. It stands 100 feet above the valley floor, and it's nestled into an alcove. The site was misnamed Montezuma Castle in the late 1800s by whites who thought the structure had been built by the Aztec people. The original owners, members of the southern Sanagua people, called this area home from roughly 1100 to 1425 A.D. Stroll the short trail that loops around a vegetated landscape below the castle, and you'll find great views as well of the remains of Castle A. That dwelling once rose 60 feet and was home to about 100 residents. From Montezuma's castle, it's 95 miles via Arizona 87 to Winslow, and then 35 miles east on Interstate 40 to Holbrook. Finally, another 19 miles southeast on Arizona 180 leads you into Petrified Forest National Park and its unusual landscape. There's no lodging within the park, and you have to leave by sundown, so you will need to make some tough decisions if you have just one day to visit. Do you take time to tour the Rainbow Forest Museum with its dinosaur displays, or do you hike out to the Agate House? A building built of petrified wood is pretty cool, so stretch your legs with a walk to the house. Then head north and deeper into the park to the Crystal Forest Trail. Wander this path, and you'll find yourself surrounded by petrified wood with its hues of yellow, red, and green, black, and white. Blue Mesa is another great stop. There's a trail there that takes you down into another colorful landscape of badlands, and chunks, logs, and even slabs of petrified wood in shades of red, blue, yellow, and black. The northern end of the park is anchored by the Painted Desert, a great place for sunset photos. Here you'll also see the Painted Desert Inn, which someday could put the Park Service back into the lodging business, but today it's just a museum piece. Back on Interstate 40, drive 22 miles east to Chambers, and then north on US 191 for about 38 miles to Ganado and Hubble Trading Post. This authentic trading post was opened by John Lorenzo Hubble in 1878 on the Navajo Reservation. Although it was added to the National Park System in 1967, Hubble is not a museum piece, but rather an active trading post. As such, it still holds richly woven Navajo rugs, jewelry, and other Native American artworks for sale. Schedule your visit to Hubble Trading Post for May, and you just might be able to attend the annual Native American Art Auction. Check with the park by calling 928-755-3475 for the exact date. If you have a little more free time, you could extend your trip by heading 39 miles north on 191 to Canyon de Chelly National Monument. For Wild About Utah, this is Kurt Repencheck from National Parks Traveler. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. Support for Wild About Utah on UPR is made possible in part by our listeners and the Quinney College of Natural Resources at Utah State University, where students and faculty promote the sustainability of ecosystems and the communities that depend on them. Information at cnr.usu.edu. There are a lot of good algorithm-based music sites out there, but sometimes a good playlist... Well, it needs a human touch. Is it a song that is a great song, it's just on the wrong playlist? Or have we given the playlist the wrong title so that we're not setting up someone's expectations for what they hear on the other end? I'm Kai Rizdal, what it takes to make the perfect mix next time on Marketplace from 8 p.m. Monday night at 7 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University.